You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Jordan Blossy. Hello. Also joining us is Ms. Roxy McDonald. Hi there. This week, we're discussing Barbara Loden's Wanda. Released in 1970, the film was written by, stars, and was directed by Loden. It's the personal story of a woman at wit's ends who seems adrift in her own life. I'm sure we can spoil this movie, but listen at your own risk. If you think that we're going to spoil it, just turn it off and go ahead and watch the movie, and then come on back. We will still be here as we try to unravel this film. So, Jordan, when was the first time you saw Wanda, and what did you think? It was the summer of 2015. I had just graduated from high school, and I was watching a lot of Turner Classic movies. I recorded at least 90 titles that summer. And that was the same summer that your friend uh, Richard Edwards was teaching his Summer of Darkness film noir course on TCM through uh, Ball State University. So I was watching a lot of film noir that summer, too. I had heard of Wanda a few years prior. I believe it was during a Wikipedia slash IMDb session. And I believe I found it through the movie Waitress, uh, directed by Adrian Shelley, who also died before making a second film. But I hadn't had a chance to watch this movie until that summer. I was so stunned to see such an apathetic female character. You see so many these male drifters in media and movies, TVs, like I can't even name all of them I've seen, but I don't think I have seen a character before or since Barbara Loden's Wanda where she just gives up her kids with little to no thought. The courtroom scene was a little um, shocking to me because usually you'll see this, them like fighting for their kids or just like, no, she just gives them up and just seeing this very aimless character who's also female is still like i don't think that's been done really since to that same degree how about you roxy well i only saw it recently because jordan recommended it to me i had heard of it from the you must remember this podcast with karina longworth she did a dead blonde series and one episode was dedicated to barbara loden my experience watching it was that i was struck by how it depicted rural poverty, which is something that isn't really depicted in films in an honest way. It's often played as for a joke or it's played for thrills like in Deliverance, but it's usually not from a woman's perspective. And it really stayed with me. You know, Jordan, you are quite the evangelist when it comes to this film, because I don't know if I'd ever heard of it before we got to talking about it. And if it was on my radar, it definitely wasn't that big of a, a blip to go check it out yet. It wasn't until even I was talking about The Swimmer last year, and we kept talking about the big climactic scene that happens in The Swimmer, and that it was reshot, and that Barbara Loden was the original actress in that scene, and then they reshot it with another actress. That was the first time I really became aware of Barbara Loden, and then through her, kind of knowing that she was Ilya Kazan's second wife, and then the weird relationship that they seem to have, it seemed like he wanted her out of the swimmer, uh, maybe even more than she wanted out of the swimmer. But I really wasn't familiar with this movie. This movie plays in that really nice spot of the early 70s and very personal cinema. 
I said that this movie came out in 1970. I get conflicting reports. I'm seeing 1970 and I'm also seeing 1971. There was an interview with Kazan by um, Marguerite Duras where he said that they shot it in 71, but I'm tracing it back to right around that time. It might be one of those where it was shot in 70, came out in 71, maybe it was shot and released in 71 because this seems like it would have been a really quick production all shot very much on the cheap 16 millimeter. You can really see the grain in the film when you're watching this. And it was done with like a four person crew. And I said, you know, Loden wrote, directed and starred in this thing. So it was one of those, like, let's keep this to the bare minimum of a crew and was, were able to shoot a successful independent feature that way, though it's not necessarily one that gets discussed as often as it probably should. Another thing about Kazan is he is not exactly a reliable source when it comes to Barbara Loden. Uh, yeah, they... he's a liar. <laughs> uh, reading a lot of his interviews, he was very disparaging of her work. And he claimed that he wrote the film originally and that, oh, you know, she kind of took over and really it became her film. But considering that the bare bones of this film, could it really have been written for, by him? Don't get me wrong. I am a big fan of Kazan's films, but yeah. he would have never, like, over his dead body, he would have never made a movie like this. It would have been very, it would no. have been a very different movie if he was really at the helm. And it's so different from how he usually writes women. Mm-hmm. He writes hysterical women. Deanie in um, Splendor yeah. in the Grass. And even yeah. uh, Barbara Loden's character in yeah. Splendor in the Grass is... Uh, a foil to Deanie, mm-hmm. but still very much kind of a caricature of this flapper woman. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Splinter of the Grass, I watched this movie and I vaguely recognized Loden. I remember watching it and I was like, oh, who is she? Who is she? And mm-hmm. I didn't want to bring out my phone because it like, kind of interrupts the viewing experience. I didn't want to pause. So I was like, I feel like she was a bratty sister in some Warren Beatty <laughs> movie. And then it's like, oh, Splinter of the Grass. <laughs> A funny thing about my recording of Wanda on TCM, it was some event, uh, it was hosted by Ben Mankiewicz and some second guy, who I don't remember, but I remember watching the end on their commentary, and I feel like they both completely missed the point of the movie. I felt like they were trying to read it in a sort of uh, feminist perspective, which I think a lot of people kind of trip themselves over. They kind of expect to see Wanda smash the patriarchy or mm. bourgeoisie mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. to speak yeah and i felt like ben mankowitz and this other guy were looking into that they thought maybe the movie was trying to say like don't leave your husband and i felt like they completely missed the point like i i love ben mankowitz i love tcm i love everybody involved but he completely missed the point i know that Ileana douglas uh who you have interviewed on your uh, podcast, Mike, for Grace. Um, Grace of my heart. She had this thing called uh, Trailblazing Women uh, with the, uh, the second woman who can't remember. I don't know. I haven't seen that particular segment, but I would imagine she would more accurately grasp the film. <laughs> well, it kind of speaks to, to me, it, it reminds me a lot of a film done by somebody that Douglas was pretty close to, and that was Martin Scorsese. It seems like Wanda was the uh, the early version that uh, Scorsese would use for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. It might not be as as 
dire as Wanda, uh, but it seems like Alice and Wanda are coming from similar backgrounds. I never made that connection. I've seen Alice doesn't live here anymore, but um, I do agree. They both take completely different approaches in terms of the character. Alice isn't nearly as aimless as Wanda. She what sings at a nightclub like she she's got some ambition yeah. she wants to uh make life better for her kid though i will say that ending of that movie does not age well <laughs> i didn't want to like just kind of start off with the kazan thing but it sounds like we're kind of on the same page because i also read some interviews with him where he was very disparaging and just kind of dismissive of Loden and her talent in the way that he, in that interview with Duras, he, uh, he brings up twice that while she was out uh, shooting Wanda, that he was at home taking care of the kids. And it was just like, Oh, was it that bad that you had to stay home and take care of the kids that you had to mention it twice in like a two page interview? I'm pretty much convinced that Kazan wouldn't have married Loden if his first wife hadn't died. Another thing is, uh, I read, uh, I think, in uh, Sweet for Barbara Loden that she was seeing the editor of this movie, uh, Nicholas T. Poferes, I think is how you pronounce his last name. I'm sure there was a little bit of that going on, but Mm -hmm. I think they did get back together before uh, Loden died of Mm -hmm. um, generalized cancer. It's been mentioned many times that he is liberal with the truth. Like, especially I've heard people say this about his memoirs. He said, when I first met her, she had little choice but to depend on her sexual appeal. But after Wanda, she no longer needed to be that way, no longer wore clothes that dramatized her lure, no longer came on as a frail, uncertain woman who depended on men who had the power. I realized I was losing her, but I was also losing interest in her struggle. She was careless about managing the house, let it fall apart, and I am an old-fashioned man. Yes, that's similar to what he was saying. Gosh, if you don't doll yourself up and take care of the house, you know, it's just, you know, it's like that that Trump quote, if I come home and my dinner's not ready, I'm going to hit the roof. Didn't Roger Vadim say the same thing about Jane Fonda, too? Mm-hmm. Like, around the time they were splitting up, and she... Kind of basically went a similar route. She started getting really involved in activism, yeah, was no right. longer playing up this sex yeah. symbol thing. Uh, like, she uh, cut her hair without his permission. Yeah. yeah. That drives me crazy. This whole thing of, you know, you have to have my permission to cut your hair. It's your own damn hair. It's your own damn body. Dress the way you want. Wear your hair the way you want. Do what makes you happy. And yeah, when it sounds like Kazan was mad that she wasn't dolling herself up and you know having to rely more on her feminine wiles it was coming more into herself as her own person and yeah you can dress nice you can dress you put on makeup not wear makeup whatever you want to do as long as you feel comfortable with yourself but it sounds like he wanted the package that he saw the first time and was disappointed when it became something else she doesn't do herself up in this movie she is so plain in this film and i really appreciate that and those moments where she does try to look prettier i think she knows that it's a little bit ridiculous like there's that famous image of her where she's wearing that like headband with the daisies on it that just looks in this might be you know looking at this with 2018 eyes versus the 1970s it just looks cheap and gaudy and i think it's supposed to look that way Oh, it's very tacky. It looks simply like a mall version, a crappy mall version of like a couture. 
because a lot of those plastic hair pieces were very big um, in you know, the late 60s, but in like 66, 67, not in 1970. Like even by that time, that style of like that weird plastic hat, that was outdated. It's almost like, I mean, not to poo-poo on uh, Fran Drescher, but it's almost like wearing one of her uh, leopard suits uh, today, kind of, though not nearly as much of a time Mm -hmm. jump. (laughs) The first time we're introduced to Wanda is interesting because we don't necessarily know who the this this movie is going to be about. You know, we start off with her sister first, and I think at first that it's going to be about this woman who's holding this child who's in this small house, and then we see her husband, and her husband talks. I'm like, well, maybe this is going to be about their relationship, and it isn't until the husband leaves that we then get introduced to Wanda who's been sleeping on the couch and it's not a pullout couch or anything. She's just sleeping on the couch. And that's the way that we're introduced to Loden as Wanda. And so we get her, like I said, not very glamorous at all because here she is waking up and she looks like she just put in eight, 10, 12 hours and she gets herself dressed up a little bit But then we get that amazing image that really just, for me, stands for this film of her in the distance in this white outfit going across these this black field of coal. And this whole movie really just kind of is steeped in coal mining type culture, the the land of coal mining. I'm thinking like southern Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, those kind of places. And just to see her as this small figure in this landscape, just dwarfed by everything else around her. And we follow her for such a long time. And it's a really meditative image. And we don't know this woman yet. And we never really get to, at least for me, I never seem to really get to know her fully. She's always a little bit enigmatic because she seems to keep her own counsel. And I don't even know if she knows herself that well. And I think that's part of what Wanda is, who Wanda is, is that she's, like I said, she's adrift in the world. She seems to be like a, like a, a flower petal just going across the wind. She doesn't necessarily know where she's going to land. And she lands on a lot of different places throughout this movie. And that's what gives the film its eventual structure. It's uh, funny. You mentioned places like Virginia, uh, places in the South, because that's where um, Barbara Loden originally wanted to film, was in the South, and that's where she was from. I forget exactly what state she was from, but she grew up in poverty, uh, similar to Wanda, and I think the reason they didn't shoot it was because it was too expensive, so they ended up shooting in Pennsylvania uh, because it was cheaper and also was near nearer to an editing lab mm. that they could just go by. I mean, you do what you can with... Uh, a bare minimum um, shoestring budget. For me personally, watching that image was so arresting, just a personal reaction, but I'm from Nova Scotia, which is pretty much the Pennsylvania of Canada, which is also very rich in coal mining. Coal mining is one of the main industries where I'm from. And um, yeah, it's that's, that's what it looks like. And it's very realistic. That image of the lone woman against this backdrop is um, it felt very real. It felt very real to me as someone who grew up in coal mining culture or net or adjacent to it, I should say. And like I said, we get her just kind of moving in and out of these scenarios. Like I 
kind of am getting the feeling that there's going to be a court scene because we get the introduction of this guy who's driving down the road and this uh, station wagon and he gets out and he's yelling up to a guy that I think he works with and he's saying, you know, I'm going to be late. I got to go to court. And then eventually we see him at the courthouse and that's where Wanda shows up at. And this whole thing of like, you know, I say it seems like he seems to be, this seems to be happening. Nothing is necessarily handed out in this film. We don't get a whole lot of like, there's no real information dump as we go through here. We are just kind of there as a fly on the wall. We're just experiencing this as this film is unfolding and we're not getting a lot of handholding, which I kind of appreciate. It feels very French new wave. It feels very new cinema. It felt a lot. It reminded me a lot of like uh, the killer of sheep, just this kind of like you're experiencing a family, a person, a woman, just how this is unfolding and things change throughout. You know, she ends up in this courtroom to your point from earlier, she doesn't fight for her children. And so we're like, well, why is that? But she just seems so noncommittal to anything. It just seems almost like she's more thankful to be rid of these people and to have the freedom, but it doesn't seem like she really has a stake in any game because she just moves from this scenario to another scenario to another scenario. You know, next thing we know, she's having a one night stand with a guy who then tries to run out on her. She ends up going to a movie theater, falls asleep during the movie and gets robbed. And it's just like these little vignettes as we go through and see kind of her hard luck. And so much of this film also seems to be about money. You know, you talked about, you know, you made the the point, Roxy, that it was rich in coal mining, but it's not a rich area. Same thing with this area. It is not a rich area. You know, she's asking people for money several times throughout this film. She's getting robbed at the movie theater. I'm surprised that she had any money to begin with, but we saw her actually get some money earlier in the film. So it's very much centered on money and the problems that happen because of poverty. Money and a lack of mobility. So a lot of the uh, men that she attaches herself to herself to are men with cars, literally, that can get her from one place to another. Because um, so many of the scenes that we see her in are just these, you know, vast expanses of road. If you don't have a car, if you don't have money, you are stuck. Sometimes attaching yourself to a shitty dude like those guys um, is better than being trapped wherever you are. And I know that Loden was um, to go back on the French New Wave influence. She was inspired by the movie Breathless uh, by Godard. And mm-hmm. and she said as a kid she hated uh, Hollywood movies growing up because everybody was so perfect and she just felt so inferior, which is kind of ironic because... In the way, I see this movie as sort of a fuck you to Kazan in terms of his uh, style. I mean, it really is diametrically opposed to everything he's done. It's like a lot of her relationships with men are, I don't know, is the word transactional? Yeah, transactional. Right. And it kind of uh, also reminded me of um, Barbara Payton. She was an old Hollywood actress who would later... Uh, turned to uh, informal prostitution, which mm-hmm. then turned to formal prostitution. Mm-hmm. I learned through the You Must Remember This podcast that she was working on a screenplay. I think Kazan called it a movie star of her own in his interview with uh, Duraz. 
the screenplay seems to be based on the life of uh, Barbara Payton. I want to like get a copy of that script if it exists, which it probably does. If uh, Sweet to Barbara Loden talks about like these bunch of files that she left behind in this mausoleum. So if um, Barbara Loden's estate can uh, release that, that'd be great. <laughs> I mean, it's potential. Um, there has been a lot of renewed interest in Wanda, so it's always possible. I definitely think a Criterion release is yeah. inevitable. Like, I don't want to say five years, like maybe three years. I could definitely see it happening. There are times where I will admit that I had a little bit of trouble following this movie and just paying attention because it moves very slow. This is a very deliberate pace to it. And there are even times where I've read things about the end of the film. I'm not going to jump there right now, but when we get there, Hopefully you guys can help clear some things up for me because there are times where I was like, I don't remember that. I don't necessarily remember any of these things. So I'm like, was I paying attention or was it one of these like early film reviews where people put on paper what they think happened rather than what actually did happen? Because this was, like I said, early 70s release. So there were things written about it back then before the age of video and before we could go back and just rewatch something whenever we wanted to. I think the second time I watched Wanda, it took me it took me two sittings, and I think it took me two sittings the first time I watched it too because of how slow it is paced. And I remember watching that scene where she's walking in the black hole and thinking like, oh geez, they couldn't have like cut off like thirty seconds. But at the same time, it, it is kind of the point of the movie that it's just very slow and aimless and. If um, somebody asked me to uh, summarize Wanda in a single frame, that would be the frame that I would pick because it just captures so much and how she's just devoured by this world and just can't really seem to become of significance. (laughs) It's aimless and it's desolate. And there are times where I keep thinking that this movie is going to turn into something else. Like early in the film, she stops by this sweatshop and goes in and she's asking for her wages for the last two weeks. And the guy's like, no, I already paid you. And she's like, but it was supposed to be $24 and you gave me $9. And he was like, he almost does the line from raising Arizona, you know, government do take a bite. Don't she? I'm thinking like, Oh, well this is going to turn into Norma Ray or something, but it's no Norma Ray. No, she's just like, Oh, okay. And he tells her flat out, like you just work too slow and her reactions and everything just really make you believe that she works way too slow because she's just so, oh, all right, so kind of flat and beat down. I think that's the thing is she just seems so beat down by the world and she never really gets beyond that. And the the real main uh, act of the film is her getting beat down literally at times when she meets this guy, Norman Dennis, who she calls Mr. Dennis, It's another time where I think she's going to go in and try to hook up with somebody. Again, one of those transactional uh, arrangements that I think is going to happen. And it ends up that she goes into this diner. She rushes to the back, is putting water on her face. Maybe she's covering that she's crying. Maybe she's not. She's been not having a good day. And she comes out and here's this guy running this diner. At least that's what she thinks. And only to turn out that he's actually robbing the diner. And we've got the real counterman tied up behind the back. And then she falls in with this guy, Mr. Dennis. And then they stay together throughout the majority of the film. 
and it becomes this really twisted relationship and something that she seems to be okay with. Again, she's a very put upon person and this seems to just be another one of those things. Like I'm not really sure what she's getting out of it other than to your point, Roxy, that she's upwardly or, or not upwardly, but she's mobile. She's getting away from places because the rest of the movie, much of it takes place in a car. She's moving at least somewhere. If she's not moving forward in her life emotionally, but Physically, she's moving. So what? He's a jerk. He likes to rob banks, but nothing better to do. I mean, it's not just nothing better to do. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with her, you know, growing up in poverty. I'm not trying to, like, put it as simply as nothing better to do, although that's certainly sometimes a motivator. Jumping off a point that you made earlier about whether or not the film is feminist, I think it ties into this discussion here. Um, I don't think that a feminist film has to depict a character who, like, is a badass, like Numa Bay, who, like, kicks ass and, you know, like, does everything and really wins the movie. I think a film can depict things as they really are. A film can depict a woman who is um, downtrodden and uh, fucked up by a woman who is by the confines of the world that she lives in. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, a truly feminist filmmaker is someone who depicts things as they are the mm-hmm. real truth, which is what Barbara Loden really did with Wanda. And I know that Loden didn't uh, intend this to be a feminist film either. She said she knew nothing about women's rights at the time, which it was 1970. I mean, the second wave yeah. of feminism was just just getting uh, started. Right. And I know that um, feminists at the time this movie came out hated it and said, oh, how could you betray women in such a bad light? Which goes back to this. Why is she not smashing the patriarchy or the glass Mm -hmm. ceiling or the bourgeoisie? You can't go in with that mentality with this movie. And I think it's also tied to the idea that every female protagonist has to be likable, which is why you see so many female protagonist in various movies and such that aren't likable get so much hate where a male character would get a pass. Uh, For instance, I know we've talked about uh, Betty Draper on Mad Men extensively, which is a good example. And also, I think January Jones, if this movie ever did get remade, I'm not saying it should, but I think January Jones would be a good pick for uh, Wanda. Yeah, because like Betty Draper, she does have that sort of um, cold... Uh, detached aura about her that definitely puts people off in a female mm-hmm. protagonist they might accept a female protagonist who is um, hysterical or who is very angry even if she isn't uh, like the kick-ass superhero girl they want someone who is very big in the way that she is depicted Wanda isn't that she's detached she's removed from the audience um, she doesn't connect with any of the characters and therefore she doesn't connect with us really. And that's hard for people because we expect that female characters are emotionally exposed and we expect mm-hmm. them to just throw their misery in front of us so we can analyze them. And it's a double-edged sword too. It's like we expect our female characters to be emotional, but at the same time we ridicule them mm-hmm. if they are. I guess off the top of my head would be Sansa from Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. Uh, she's a very uh, emotional character, especially early on in the series. And she got ridiculed for, oh, she's got a crush on Joffrey, that stupid bitch. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's like you can't really win, you know? And uh, Wanda is a 
good example of that on the other end of the spectrum uh, where the icy blonde can't win uh, unless she's uh, Grace Kelly, you know? (laughs) She doesn't have a lot of expository monologues. She doesn't um, tell any of the characters directly how she feels. And um, so we, the audience, can only know what we can um, analyze. See. The closest we get to a sort of exposition is uh, the photograph with her husband that Mr. Dennis finds mm-hmm. as he leaves through her wallet. And also when he asks her about her children later on in one of the car scenes, and yeah. she just says they're better off with their father. I'm um, just no good. That's the most yeah. we get. Yeah. We never find out if like she had any real interest or was just or if she was bullied at school or. Yeah she had any other boyfriends like we don't we don't know any of that there's no reason for her to be a shitty mom she just is yeah and she just is the one moment that's really telling for me that happens in here is when she is first with mr dennis and they've had their first night together and they're driving along and he stops the car and tells her to get out and she says but i haven't done anything And I think that can be read a couple different ways. Like, I haven't done anything to you. You know, there's no reason for you to kick me out of the car. But also at the same time, it's almost, I haven't done anything yet. Like, we haven't started this relationship. We haven't started this adventure. We haven't done anything yet together. And that's kind of a nice moment. Like, she gets that opportunity to get out of the car, but she doesn't want to get out of the car. She wants to go along with this. And you're sitting there, or I'm sitting there watching this, screaming, like, get out of the car. This guy's bad for you. But she sticks with him and sticks with this this craziness that follows. And it's one of those, you know, people can't understand or some people can't understand the power of an abusive relationship and why it continues. And, you know, we've had a lot of discussion around that over the last year and a half or so of, you know, well, why don't people come forward earlier and talk about these things? Why do they stick with this abusive relationship? Why does it go on for so long? And this is the perfect example of seeing this and seeing just people are put in desperate situations. They end up doing desperate things. And it's a really nice way that we get to see this without to your point from earlier, this kind of heavy-handed commentary, we don't get her at a bar, you know, saying like, well, I never had a chance, and my husband did this, and I never had this thing, and da-da-da-da-da. It's very, it's almost like a, a like a Kuleshov thing. We are just experiencing this. We are projecting ourselves onto Wanda because she is such a blank slate, because she doesn't give us that information. We have to try to figure out who this person is as we're watching this film. And it's a nice way to, you know, to, to pull that information out and also to see ourselves up on screen as well. And the thing about her saying, I didn't do anything seems to indicate to me that she's been in an abusive relationship like this before. I have a couple of coworkers. Uh, I have one in particular that is like this, that kind of apologizes in advance. And I know that her boyfriend is abusive. So I've seen that. Uh, play out in real life as well she's anticipating um the response mm-hmm. knows what's coming next it's a little surprising when this ends up being a bank robbery thing because you, you don't expect this to turn into bonnie and clyde and it doesn't turn into bonnie and clyde but there's that kind of uh you know it's funny because bonnie and clyde was just what two years earlier than this and so we have this male and female bank robber 
Uh, but things play out much, much differently in this scenario. The one thing when you guys were talking about seeing female protagonists and feminist protagonists, one other movie that I was thinking of while I was watching this was Monster because of the way that they may, you know, Monster is this times a uh, hundred thousand, you know, the idea of a traditionally beautiful woman who's playing a non-attractive woman. You know, Barbara Loden is absolutely gorgeous, but she does nothing to make that apparent in this movie. She's still very pretty. She can't do anything about that. She doesn't go to those extremes of putting on, you know, the monster makeup that uh, Charlize Theron did in Monster. But that idea of this woman who is at her wit's end, all of these bad things happen to her, but it's like monster goes another way. And then people will read that as like, Oh, this is this feminist film. Whereas Wanda, it's people are like, uh, yeah, yeah, this is feminist, but it's like, yeah, no, this is just, it's a story and you can bring what you want to it. Like I was saying before, you can read into this, what you need to read into this. So I can see where people want to make this into a feminist film because this is a, female protagonist but yeah she's not necessarily a strong female protagonist this is just more of a a slice of life kind of story and also showing what people were going through at this particular time in many ways it's an antidote to bonnie and clyde um because the thing that struck me the most is the lack of suspense you know for a film with bank robberies in it i really like i wasn't on the edge of my seat you know um, you knew was it was no, going to end badly, yeah. no matter how it ended. Yeah. There was no dramatic music. Um, nope. The the cuts weren't that stylistic. It was like watching a bank robbery happen in real life and being like, oh, is that it? Barbara Loden hated Bonnie and Clyde. Again, it was another Hollywood movie. It's like, oh, people like Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty would be too beautiful to mm-hmm. end up in that sort of life. And I can't say I disagree. I, I mean, the real life Bonnie and Clyde were not that good looking. Were not beautiful. They were not re- particularly charismatic. I mean, yes, the real Bonnie Parker did write poems, but they were just, you know, two bit robbers who got a little bit of notoriety along with yeah. a bunch of other robbers at the time. The real Bonnie and Clyde mostly robbed convenience stores. They weren't necessarily the uh, hero to the people that they're portrayed as in the Arthur Penn film, where they're taking down, you know, the the banks and the big mucky mucks and fighting against the establishment. They were small town crooks. And they were victims of poverty, just like Wanda is. This is the point where I'm hoping you guys can help me clear this up. So at the end, after Mr. Dennis is apprehended, what happens? Like, t- Tell me again what happens in this part, because I am completely muddied. I've read one thing and I have another thing in my head. What happens to you guys? He is shot and killed. Um, it is revealed via a news um, bulletin on a TV when she's at the bar and she, yeah. couldn't, she couldn't make it to the robbery on time. Um, I can't remember why. She, oh, she got pulled over because some cops like, oh, where's your um, ID? Where's He's giving her a ticket and she didn't make it on time and people already crowding up leaves and then she's at this bar and this guy's hitting on her this um i guess like this army guy i don't know what branch 
So, and then she ends up going off with this guy. And unlike the last couple of guys, this guy isn't consensual. She actually fights back. And it's probably the only time she fights back in this movie. He tries to rape her, but she manages to escape on time. And then we cut to her going to this rinky-dink bar. And there's this woman who kind of looks like uh, Bobby Gentry to me. Yeah, uh, she's in red, and she says, like, ah, oh, what are you doing? She's like, yeah, hey, come on in. And then she uh, joins them for drinks and such at the ch- table. I think I think it's a mariachi band that's playing uh, some sort of... Something uh, like there, that. Yeah, there's music. folk music, some yes. Started. Yeah. And um, they just... Um, people are, like, giving her drinks, sharing her food, and she's just hanging around with these people. And uh, we cut to her... Uh, what is she, like, smoking a cigarette? And it's like the last frame of the movie. And it's kind of eerie, too, because it looks like somebody's last known photograph. And I think it's the impression we're supposed to get, too. I mean, a lot of this movie honestly looks like somebody's last known photograph. Like, Mm -hmm. if I didn't know better, uh, I mean, I'd say, like, oh, my God, is this a snuff film? (laughs) You think, like, it's going to go in that direction if you didn't know better. Like, if you just saw, like, still frames, like, oh, God, is somebody, like, going to get beheaded? (laughs) I don't think I can handle this. It's it's ambiguous. I got the impression, for some reason, my brain went there, that she's about to change her identity. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, it's very weird. It's like this whole movie is the Mandela effect in of itself. Berenstain, you know, everybody (laughs) sees something different. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I remember reading an Amazon review about this movie and uh, somebody speculated that she'd probably would have ended up like the Faye Dunaway character in the movie Barfly, which is based off a book by Charles Bukowski. And there's a woman in it named Wanda and she's just drinking at a bar. But for me, I could see her ending up more like the woman Becky in the movie Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Uh, like I could see Wanda just like getting the worst luck possible and attaching herself to someone that's supposed to be like Henry Lee Lucas. And I know it's very morbid, but I could see that. I could see that happening with her. This is obviously a pattern with her. So definitely Mm -hmm. her next move is just to move on to another adventure. I use air quotes, Um, move on to another partner in crime. Um, Another thing that's not taking her anywhere, but it's something. So she never gets caught. She never goes in front of the judge a second time. None of those things happen. Which is a notable departure from the story that uh, Barbara Loden based this on. The woman in real life was named Alma Malone. And uh, she uh, was with this guy. I think the guy in real life she called Mr. Wilson. Some, I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of Dennis the Menace. Something like that. <laughs> Mr. Lewis. But uh, and when a reporter asked her why she called him the mister, she said, uh, respect for the dead, uh, which I thought was a was a little mm. funny. She did get caught, this woman, Alma Malone, and she thanked the judge for putting her in jail. And then the genesis of that movie was Barbara Loden read the story like, why would somebody thank a judge for putting them for putting them away? And that's how this movie uh, came to be. Well, I think it ties back to our earlier discussion about poverty, because in jail, you get a place to sleep, mm-hmm. you get meals, you get a roof yep. over your head. Yep. So, yeah. And also, she's a white woman, so she's not going to get the worst of the prison system, even in uh, 1970 
or even today, wouldn't. So let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we're going to play a few words from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Dame Judi Dench, Her Royal Highness, the Honorary Queen of the British Isles, part of the Caribbean, and I have a scarf consortium in the basement of Harrods. I'm just here to tell you all about this wonderful, relatively new podcast from the After Movie Diner. There's movie discussion, interviews with independent film directors, music, and abject silliness. First thing, every Monday, just in time for your sweaty and stressful commute. Or like me, maybe you're sprawled seductively on a chaise long waiting for a really good breakfast. Go to amdpodcast.blogspot.com or search for After Movie Diner on iTunes, TalkShoe, Podbean, or Facebook and get that dose of goodness that you've been looking for. For all your sleepless nights, long commutes, and lonely weekends, maybe spent dressed in a tutu playing checkers with machine-eating Nutella straight from the jar. It's the After Movie Diner podcast, filled with all the B-movie vitamins your body deserves. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast proudly resents, and you're listening to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know. It's messed up, right? All right. We are back, and we are talking about Wanda. Now, I kind of mentioned that this reminded me of Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. 
for some reason, while I was watching this, and this is a, a color film, like I said, you can see the grain to it. It's very pastel in a lot of ways. But for some reason, while I was watching this, I kept thinking of Dushan Makaveyev's Man is Not a Bird. And I think it was probably because of the factory setting of that, the kind of dire economic situation that people are in in that film. That was one that came to mind while I was watching this. And then the other one was Tulane Blacktop, just that kind of real determined pace. A movie I thought about, uh, which I saw around the same time, too, was uh, John Cassavetti's A Woman Under the Influence. Uh, It's that same uh, rustic setting. It might even be the same area. I think it's a New England state that movie's set in. And uh, while Jenna Rollins is a complete contrast to Wanda, I mean, there's an overly emotional female character, as Roxy and I were talking about earlier. But it's that same graininess, and it's... And you could see why a movie like Wanda is considered a precursor to movies by uh, Cassavetes. And that's somebody, um, you mentioned that this movie is kind of a precursor to Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And I and I kind of see that, but I think it's a lot closer uh, in spirit to the films of directors like Cassavetes, who are just this ultra-realistic style. And uh, both movies are not ones... Um, I admit I could watch over and over. It's not like beyond the Valley of the Dolls. It's, it brings up a lot of uncomfortable emotions and it's just, it it can put you in a very dark place depending on like how you're feeling. Just right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Scorsese. Alice doesn't live here anymore, but I, I thought she had a lot in common with, well, her initial, a little bit with Travis Bickle. She's aimless. Because she floats from place to place, because she doesn't seem to have a lot of great uh, social skills. She doesn't really seem to know how to interact in certain situations. She's certainly um, not emotive. That's for yeah, sure. She's not emotive at all. And her relationships are, yes, they're transactional, as we said before. Um, much like Travis's, I think they're um, mm-hmm. kind of detached and she's projecting her own feelings onto these relationships, which are kind of one-sided. And now that I do think about it, it is a lot, a lot like early Scorsese movies, Mm -hmm. including taxi driver. I think Scorsese would have been more likely to make this kind of movie than Elia Kazan. That's that's for damn sure. Yeah. I could almost see her and like boxcar Bertha hanging out. Or even like uh, getting mixed up with uh, Harvey Keitel. (laughs) Yeah. There were times where I was thinking, you know, like I said, uh, Tulane Blacktop with that very determined pace. And you guys brought up the whole idea of, you know, the male drifter, and that's much more acceptable than a female drifter. So my mind went to uh, Jerry Schatzberg's Scarecrow, which we're going to be talking about later on this year. And just that kind of, you know, it's it's similar in that there's this moving from place to place, never knowing what's going to happen next. You know, they end up in jail in that one, they get out, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, the, in that one, it's, it's kind of a buddy movie, but then it's also much more acceptable to have these male drifters and have even like a Travis Bickle. It's more acceptable to have a, a Travis Bickle than to have a female Travis Bickle. Do you think that Wanda has any friends? Do you think we could envision this as a buddy flick? Do you think that she... Um, uh, <laughs> she I, I don't really see it. No. I mean, 
I mean, I guess the closest we get, I mean, I know it's kind of a laughable example is uh, with Mr. Dennis, but even then it's just, I mean, I can't imagine her. I mean, again, she lacks a social skill. She's not particularly emotive. I can't imagine her really um, getting on with her gal pals. Yeah, I don't see a, a Thelma and Louise ever coming out with Wanda and somebody else. I I can't see any. I mean, she's such an anomaly for her time. I can't see any woman really wanting to be friends with somebody who would just like take off, like let her husband take care of her kids and not really do anything, you know? Yeah. And how dare any woman expect a man to take care of the kids? All right. We're going to uh, take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. No license, no prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was just into the eyeballs. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys. You've been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't become addicted to that dying world. No, sir. He needs help. I think I'm crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son. You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that? Science ain't an exact science. You had a bullet from World War One in your leg, James. How did you get there? I don't know. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. I want the future to be unknown. I can help you. Get you out. monkeys. The thing mutate, we live underground. They're watching you. I just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet. Asroy will be back next week with a discussion of 12 Monkeys. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jordan and Roxy. Jordan, what have you been up to lately? Drawing and uh, doing hand lettering on Instagram and uh, joking on Twitter. Uh, both handles are uh, Jordash Blossom, Jordash the Jeans brand, and Blossom the Powerpuff Girl. I also run the uh, Instagram page for the Projection Booth and have since February 2017. So, um... I put out all the new episodes, and uh, I see all your messages, guys. I see all the messages. Jordan sees them I don't, which is probably pretty good. And Roxy, what's been keeping you busy? Uh, I am a writer slash blogger, so you can find me online um, as Elizabeth Taylor, as in Elizabeth Taylor, but with a bitch, uh, tum- com, And it's the same handle, but with no I in bitch on Twitter. And I write jokes there as well. 
Well, I will be sure to link to both of you ladies uh, over at our website, projection-boot.com. I want to encourage people to head on over there where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. I remember when I was a little girl... Our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced to the burning building out of the pavement. And I stood there, shivering in my pajamas, and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, Is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all. And when I was 12 years old, my daddy took me to the circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears, and a beautiful lady in pink tights flew high above our heads. And as I sat there watching, I had the feeling that something was missing. I don't know what, but when it was all over, I said to myself... Is that all there is to the circus? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. That's all there is And then I fell in love With the most wonderful boy in the world We'd take long walks down by the river Or just sit for hours gazing into each other's eyes We were so very much in love And then one day He went away when I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep... I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh no, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment. Because I know, just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, that when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, 
Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.